We are uh, honored to have with us this morning as our guest preacher, uh, the Reverend Dr. Michael Metzger. Uh, Mike uh, is somebody that I first encountered uh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, he taught my class on the philosophy of ministry back when I was in seminary, and he's become a good friend and a mentor to me for a long time. His wife, Kathy, is joining us uh, as well. And when we were looking ahead, when I was looking ahead at the, at the sermon series on 1 Corinthians and uh, looked at this verse, I figured there was nobody that I would rather have to preach it than Mike, and thankfully he's available to be with us. So will you please give a warm welcome to Mike Metzger. That can't be Jesus. Jesus is left-handed. It's probably ambidextrous. You see why Jason and I get along so well. He's my only friend I have left. When um, we have three adult children now, what do you call them when they're 30 or so? Adults, yeah. And uh, when they were applying for college, what struck me was uh, the frequency of the word diversity. I think the University of Maryland uses it every fifth word in all of their brochures. And uh, it just struck me as rather odd. Uh, I went to college in 18, 1972, and uh, I don't recall them ever talking about diversity. UCLA's done a study of incoming freshmen beginning in 1969, and, the, and they asked them, why are you going to college? They gave them about 10 options. And in 69, when they first did the study, the number one reason someone went to college was to, quote, develop a meaningful philosophy of life. Make more money was about number 10. Now, I know some of you think, you know, 69, everybody's smoking dope, so that, that's why they would say that. But actually, a few of us weren't. I came into college in 72. Every year since 69, developing a meaningful philosophy of life has dropped, and making more money has come up. Now it's number one. I think because of that, universities and colleges have lost their way. They lost their ball in the weeds. The point is not diversity. It should be an outcome. I'm going to suggest this morning the passage that we're going to look at says the same thing about the church. The church is, doesn't aim for diversity, it's an outcome. And when churches and faith communities make it a goal to say we are going to be diverse, I think it shows we've lost our ball in the weeds as well. I played college and football, yes, met some young people last night and they said, leather helmet? I said, that's really funny. <laughs> And it was one of the most diverse communities I was ever a part of, but I wasn't recruited to be part of a diverse community. I was, the aim was higher than that, and because of that, diversity naturally came about. So this morning's passage actually is a picture of what happens when the church aims for something more. Now I'm going to use an analogy, but I'm going to say it carefully. Since we're adults here, I'm going to talk to you as adults. And I think the analogy works this way. Just like in marriage, if a marriage aims for sex, you generally enjoy it less and it's less frequent. If it aims for love, it generally is more frequent and more enjoyable. I think this passage here reminds us that the early church aimed for love. And the outcome, amongst other things, was diversity. So if you have a Bible, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 16.19. Now, it's only in a church like this anymore. It's like being in Harry Ironside's church. I had to check back with Jason. One verse? 
One verse. And of course, also when I read it, I thought, okay, where's Jason going to be? Out of country? I get it. So if you don't have a Bible, I'll read it to you. Here we go. This is uh, the Apostle Paul's seemingly simple sign-off. And it reads this way. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Now, Paul wrote this somewhere between 53 and 57 A.D., which is about 20 years after the church was launched, Pentecost. How long has uh, New Hope been around? 14 years. 14 years. I want you to consider the remarkable growth of the church in just 20 years. We're going to see in a moment, 20 years after the ascension of Christ, the geographical network of the church takes in Asia Minor, Italy, Corinth, Greece, that was from Paul's second missionary journey, and you have a diverse ethnic network of Asians, Greeks, Italians, Jews, Gentiles. That's pretty darn good. A few years later, about 60, Paul would say the gospel has been preached all over the known world, which probably took in the Mediterranean, the New Eastern world, uh, the uh, Near Eastern world, yes. He wrote that in the book of Colossians. But the goal wasn't the network, and the goal wasn't diversity. The goal was love. In fact, in Paul's last letter before his death, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, some of you might say, recognizing that they show real love to people everywhere they went. And so, I'd like to just uh, have us ponder a bit about what love looks like, and why love would be the aim. And you actually have it all around you in pictures. So let me go back before there was time and space and history and creation. We know that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, and God is love. Historically, that was pictured in circles. There you have the triune God living in an eternal love relationship. One nature, three persons. Diverse persons. Bound together by love. And love, by definition, is the enjoyment of the other and the desire to expand the circle. Now think about that for a moment. How can God expand the circle of love? Can't create other gods. God is, by definition, not created. And so Father, Son, Spirit, in their infinite wisdom and love, deem to create a bride for the Son. And that bride is humanity. And had we never fallen, seven billion people on the planet would be one bride for Jesus. Now, some of you think seven billion, one, I don't get it. Well, here's another question. How can three beings be one God? You figure that thing out, and the idea that humanity can be the bride. Now, we know this because, for example, in the book of Hosea, any good Jew who was faithful grew up knowing the Messiah to come, they were betrothed, is the word that's used, engaged to be married to Messiah. Because God is love. And so, Paul 
be the good Jew that he was, you might remember, how does he come to faith? Because he thinks the church is a disaster. It's not a continuation. It is not the fulfillment of Judaism. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you hurting me? And he goes, well, who are you? And Jesus. Have you ever read, Paul says in marriage, the wife's body belongs to the husband, and the husband's body belongs to the wife's. Jesus, as the head, is saying, you're hurting my body. My body. This is why Paul, later on in his life, would write, you know, Love is the quintessential virtue. If we're going to be like God and fulfill all that we are meant to be, we are the bride. In fact, in Colossians he wrote this, that when Christ comes again as our groom, our true identity will be revealed. What is Jason's truest identity? The same for me and for my wife, Kathy. We are the bride. Now, I understand that some of what I'm saying here, it sounds a bit like, what planet did this guy come from? Now, I'm going to share with you why, because we are part of a two, three hundred year legacy in the West, especially in America, of individualism. It's a vertical relationship, me and Jesus. But these stained glass windows around us remind us that was never the faith. The faith was viewed as, up at the top, for example, all these circles pick up that God, Father, Son, Spirit, live in an infinitely infinite circle of love that seeks to expand and bring in a bride for the Son. Unity, diversity. How many of you know, by the way, that is the vision behind what the church introduced first in Paris, Boulogne, and Cambridge and Oxford. It was called a university. So all the disciplines, the arts, sciences, history, philosophy, were held together by a queen science called theology. Again, I understand I probably sound like a dinosaur. But that's how C.S. Lewis used to introduce himself in his final years at Cambridge, when he would say, I'm a dinosaur, and I'm one of the last ones around, so you ought to pay attention to what I'm going to share with you. They didn't. So let me tell you what happens with, Pris with Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla. Aquila, husband and wife. I'm going to start in Pentecost. The reason I start there is that you'll notice God is committed to diversity, but it's not the aim. But we see thousands come to faith from all sorts of backgrounds. And so the diverse network is underway, but it's really nothing that his bride instigated. He did at Pentecost. But the aim would be, if you love as God does, what's the first characteristic of having a love of which there's no, nothing greater? Anyone remember? You lay down your life. You give up your life. Now again, 
I do not want to appear overly, I don't want to overly eroticize here, but the church was very plain for a thousand years or so of talking about the erotic nature of the love of God. Google sometimes the statue, the ecstasy of Teresa, who is in orgasmic delight by being united with Christ. And I can tell you why. The reason Kathy and I are one, and I would lay down my life for her, and I don't have anything of mine, is because we enjoy what is called nuptial union. There's nothing dirty about this. How else can you explain the characteristic of the early church? What did they do right out of the block? all these diverse ethnicities and backgrounds and gifts and talents, but they come to Christ at Pentecost, and what's one of the first things it says they do? Pop quiz. How many possessions did they have? Someone say that real loud. They gave up everything. You know, the average Christian in the United States gives 3%. I think it's because we have not been penetrated by love and are what James K. Smith at Calvin College calls love machines. We're supposed to be lovers. And when you're a lover and you give up all your possessions, you are now in the company of the triune God. And strange things can begin to happen to your life because you give up control of your life. Billy Graham said this hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the United States. And the church today is anything but diverse. I would recommend don't aim for diversity. Start with love, in which you give up all your possessions, all your possessions, and watch what happens. And so what happens is, if you have Saul, for example, comes to Christ, modern-day Turkey, and the church begins to have influence in Asia Minor. Now, he came out of Tarsus, which was a Roman process of Sicilia, so the Jews had Roman citizenship. You might remember he cashed in on that later on. But because it was a cultural and intellectual center, you also have the early church it is remarkably an urban upper-class, aristocratic, we've got to get that person in here to fumble that last word. It's an aristocratic movement. You might sit there and say, you've got to be kidding me. No. Do you know that when Paul went to the Areopagus, you've heard of that before, Mars Hill? Familiar with that? It's two Greek words, Areopagus, elevated land, a hill. Pagus literally meant land. A pagan was someone who worked the land, a farmer. They were outside the cities. The church was so influential in those networks and diversities inside of cities that 300 years later, pagans, which had no moral implication when Christ was around, were now denoted as those still beyond the reach of the gospel because they're not in the cities. They don't have all that intercourse through these networks. Isn't that remarkable how the church grew? It was diverse by not trying to be diverse but instead by being lovers. Aquila and Prisca are one like that. So 
what happens is Aquila and Priscilla, were, they came to faith somewhere in Rome. We're not sure when exactly that happened, but when Claudius, the ruler, ordered all the Jews to leave the city, they went to Corinth. Now, in Corinth is where they met Paul. And as a few years later, that, that Paul, writing to the Corinthians, would remind the Corinthians that he had betrothed them to one husband. Straight out of Hosea, straight out of the gospel of love, straight out of the picture of Father, Son, Spirit, wanting to expand the circle of love by having a bride for his son. Aquila and Priscilla, I think, were very captured by that because they too gave up everything for him and they worked with Paul in his trade and in his apostolic work. In fact, we even know for a period of time they made tents with Paul. Now, that's only important in this regard. There's a lot of ballyhoo is made out of tent making. Best I can tell, Paul makes tents because other Christians were notorious for not fulfilling their financial pledge. And rather than gripe or complain, he said, well, let's take up a trade. Why would you do that? Because you love that person. You love where you're being sent. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla uh, joined him in that, and they made tents for a period of time. Now, if you ever wonder if I'm making that up about... a for example, the Corinthians, look in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul gives seven reasons why he is worth their financial support. And in the end he goes, but I ain't taking it from you because you guys are so unreliable. What would Jesus say if he visited here today? Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you give up 42% of your possessions that's a joke. It's 100%. Now, the only reason you do that is because you're in love. The only reason I gave up my life and my body and everything for Kathy is I wanted to be one with Kathy. And Paul would, relate, would write later on in Ephesians, what is the best picture of Christ in the church? husband and wife, in marital unity. Love. So what happens is uh, they made tents for a period of time, and then they, so they were present with Paul in Corinth. The Corinthians knew him well. When Paul left Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla left too. They went to the Ephesus, a region called Asia, and there they remained. That's the book of Acts. And they, uh, while they were in Asia, they teach Apollos. Bright guy, again, different, diverse background. He would later become the second leader of the church in Corinth. But they taught him all about Christ. What do you think they told him? I think they told him what we're talking about here. Love. Marriage. And then Aquila and Prisca's time in Ephesus happened while Paul was elsewhere. And when we turned to Ephesus, Paul had, Apollos had already established a church there. And Aquila and Priscilla also established a church and it met in their home. And that's why you see this in the verse. And by the way, you notice you already have two churches in one town. There is no competition inside the body. Now there are diverse expressions. But there was no sense of, oh my gosh, Jason's going to go to Kathy's church and not mine. I've got to find some better music to get him to come.
So when they, uh, Aquila and Prisca eventually returned to Rome, they established another church there. And Paul mentions this church in Romans 16. He recalls how at one time his life was in great danger and Aquila and Prisca risked their own lives to save him. Greater love has no one than you lay down your life for another person. And so in my opinion, the Apostle Paul's seemingly simple sign-off is not so simple after all. Because it reveals a church that experienced impressive growth in just 20 years. It was a geographical network, Asia Minor, Italy, Rome, Greece, Europe, a diverse network, Asians, Greeks, Italians, Jews, Gentiles, not Germans yet. We generally would screw it up by the time we came along. While mostly urban, it also reflected the churches made up of rich and poor, but far richer than most of us imagine. And they had a network of diverse abilities and interests that established their church in the earliest days, but the aim wasn't diversity. It was love. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time on what that looks like, and I'm not going to for this reason. I think if you decide to pursue love, the first thing you'll do is you'll give up all your possessions. And when you give up all your possessions, at that point, you are now strapped to a rocket called the Triune God. And I have a hunch that he would make the church far more diverse. Again, Kathy and I are not saints. We're not a great example of this. But I do believe we have said throughout our lives, it is entirely yours. So as Jason well knows, about three years ago, our kids were out. We were empty nesters. And I was approaching 60. And so he said, Lord, it's all yours. Push the chips to the middle of the table again. We were fully expecting to probably downsize. We said, wherever he wants to go. Next thing we know, we're in downtown Annapolis in a home that's three times the size, we, <laughs> at least twice the size. I remember walking through saying, you've got to be kidding me. I'll tell you what it did, by the way. It put us at the intersection of far more diverse neighborhoods. And all of a sudden I realized how white, suburban, upper middle class I have been. I don't, I'm not advocating you all move to downtown Annapolis. I'm saying this. We'll never see the kind of diverse church that changed the world with the kind of networks it had unless you begin by putting a stake in the ground and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to be penetrated by the love of God because we love as he has loved us. And then the mark of that in the early church was you give up all your possessions. Not, you don't give 10%. You don't give 15%. If I give 15%, if I'm 15% faithful to Kathy, I'm 100% unfaithful. I'm sorry again, there's just no other way to work around it. And then what will come out of that as to where you move or where you live I have a young man that I've uh, been a friend like Jason has, and he's in Milwaukee. He's a teaching pastor in a church, hip-hop artist. He's in his early 30s now. I met Greg when he was in his late 20s. And Greg, too, said he was in a homogenous megachurch in the Burbs. And uh, as Greg fell back in love with the ancient gospel, he and Laura have moved to a sketchy neighborhood in Milwaukee to love that city. Their house has been broken into three times. 
I'm not on Facebook, Kathy is. She sent me a picture the other day. Their neighbor had a bullet go through the window, uh, didn't hit anyone. Why are they there? To build a diverse church? No. They're there to love God and love their neighbor. But neighbor means near one. And if all your near ones in your life are people who look and smell and talk and act a lot like you, even if you're Jesus lovers, it's not going to be very diverse. And so my prayer for this sort of church and for what Jason's setting out to do, as well as for Kathy and I, is aim for love. But love looks like what Jesus did. You give up all your possessions, you lay down your life, and then I wager over the next 20, 30 years, you would start to see diversity. Let's pray. Father, we are appreciative of uh, Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, and how they roamed all over the known world because they had no more agenda other than to love and be loved. And uh, I would pray that would become uh, truer of us. And uh, the implications from that would be that one day it would be more of a bride that is prepared and eager for your return to be wed to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.